Welcome to Matters of Life. I'm John Lucier, your host, and thank each and every one of you for joining us, or me, in this episode, as we continue to stand for righteousness and justice. And this evening, we're going to discuss how to be instruments of righteousness. You know, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, it says this, beginning in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And we're told then in verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. There's a lot in there about, if you will, yes, guarding our gates, but who are we presenting ourselves and our members Two and four. You know, if you would, if you have your your Bibles with you, please turn to Second Chronicles. We're going to look at both chapters seventeen and eighteen. And I say this because we're going to continue our discussion from the previous past week or two, looking at Jehoshaphat. But in there, what the Lord's calling for, and how do we live or walk this out? Not just back then, but today, in our everyday life. You know, one of the things that was mentioned about Jehoshaphat is that he knew the Lord. He knew what was right to do. He learned it from his father. And and if you will, in Second Chronicles chapter 17, it starts off by saying what he did and how he followed the Lord. He sought the Lord and followed the Lord's commandments, not acting as the other side or part of Israel did. And this is, of course, because the kingdom was divided, still divided at this time. Which, well, if we're looking, if you will, comparing, contrasting, and if you would, not that you should, trust what the media says and is being reported, This there's a lot of division in just the United States. There's a lot of division all around the world. It's not the division that you would think of or in the way you would think of it, how the media would tell you of race or ethnicity or poverty levels and the amount of wealth. It's a division of righteousness and unrighteousness when you truly get down to the core of it. Are we following the Lord or aren't we? But it mentions in in Second Chronicles chapter 17, the things that Jehoshaphat did when he was king, how he, just like it says his father David, how he followed the Lord. It says how that was Jehoshaphat's heart towards the Lord also. But it says this, there are two major things that Jehoshaphat did that, that are definitely written about as something the Lord viewed in high esteem. 
And the first thing that's mentioned, well, three things. One says how we took pride in the ways of the Lord and again moved the high places or removed the high places and the ashram from Judah. So he got rid of false gods, false idols, stumbling blocks for the people. And this goes along with that, but this is the second thing. It talks about how he appointed officials. This, this is in 2 Chronicles 17, verse 7. How he appointed these officials and Levites and priests. They had official government positions in order to teach the people. So what they said, they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. And they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. That's absolutely needed. You know, a lot of times in the United States in particular, we hear about this, this thing that many that are in opposition to or like to throw up, oh, separation of church and state. But have we fully understood what that means and why that was written about? And it comes down to, to two things. There's the Establishment Clause and then the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause aspect of the First Amendment and the freedom of religion, not from religion, but of religion, is there to prohibit the government from passing or forming its own religion. And if you have studied history or reflect back, it's exactly what happened when the Puritans or the pilgrims were leaving at the time England from or for. Because the king had decided not to abide by the laws of, of God and that were being taught in the church, and they did not want him to become divorced and remarry. So you see in their lust and a lot of other things. And he decided that he would instead form his own religion, which then he would be in control of and over, to give himself the liberty to do what he wanted to do. That's what that establishment clause was actually about. But then it has, it has become twisted where people say, oh, no, it's, it's about preferring a religion over another. Where if you would really get down to that, if you really examine it, I've only ever truly seen that directed at one religion and one God, the true living God. <clears throat> And, and no doubt you'll say, well, well, what do you mean, John? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. We, we could just go back to, if you will, to around 2008. Right around that time frame. We don't have to go back very far for, the, for these few examples. And what happened in that administration's time? That administration brought on as advisors to Department of Homeland Security, to the FBI, 
to legislation, law enforcement, they brought in CARE, the Center for American-Islamic Relations. They were also allowed to teach their curriculum and promote their religion in schools, given extended time period to do it. But they had much say in seemingly every area and aspect as advisors in this nation. But what else happened? Well, now you have, or not now, but then you also had in that that era, that administration's era, you had the legalization of what the word considers a reprobate lifestyle. And not only that, but then it progressed. Now, under the the past administration, there was a, if you will, much support from the evangelical community, or what many was the evangelical or Christian community. Now, even in that, there is, uh, there was much condemnation, and and actually, people were looking at faith and how it influenced or impacted. Only so much, really, truly, as it pertained to Christians or believers, how they were going to vote, how they were going to run their their department if they were, or when they were considered, when they were nominated for certain positions, trying to exclude them. But then let's fast forward, if you will, to now, to the current day and age. And what has happened? The, if you will, what was established as the reprobate lifestyle being legislated has now been given, if you will, examine it for what it is, religious liberties and freedoms. So is it, is it a part of the culture or is it a religion wrapped in a social construct. And, and I asked the question because even during this last round of Supreme Court rulings, people were standing outside with signs that stated, my faith does not discriminate. But yet the word faith was written in rainbow colors. Wouldn't that be an acknowledgement that it is a religion? Let's also not not forget that this thing that has also been given lots of days to celebrate. If you really study it out, it's over 140 days. 140 calendar days have been given promoting and celebrating this lifestyle or religion in this nation. So wouldn't that have violated both the established, both aspects, whichever way someone wanted to argue the establishment clause, 
that they could not, that the government is not allowed to form a religion and or that they're not allowed to promote a religion. Now, the second part of that is, I'll say, tricky. It's tricky in the sense of, or complex in the sense of, and this is my my thoughts on the matter, my belief. How can, at any point in time, how can you not be promoting a religion? Every person that comes in has been influenced by religion. And if you say that you were not promoting a religion, well, then wouldn't you be promoting an atheistic or agnostic point of view, which is in fact a religion? So there's no way to not, if you will, promote a religion if you are a leader in office. So it comes down to which one will you promote? Will it be one, the one that honors the one true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth? Or will it be any of the other counterfeits? Now I ask this because it's important to this this story that we are going to go over in this discussion in Second Chronicles. Jehoshaphat, it is written that he sought the Lord with everything. And the second, the third thing that he did, with everything that he did, he says he sought the Lord. And the third thing that he's given credit for here in Second Chronicles is this. He developed a strong military. Now, yes, there was lots of warfare going on around them. Wars or rumors of wars. It was a constant thing. But it says that he amassed, if you count out all the numbers, it comes out to 960,000 valiant warriors not just regular conventional forces not not just elite forces these are warriors can you imagine if any nation just had a mil, almost a million special forces or elite troops elite soldiers your warriors every nation every tribe has ever they have all had and understand what the word warrior is. The Lord blessed him and he established 960,000 warriors. So there's that. But now let's, let's move on to chapter 18. Because here is where we see some of the issues in it, if you will. And we covered this last in the last episode. How... King Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time, Jehoshaphat being the king of Judah. Again, the kingdoms were divided. They met, as in Jehoshaphat came down to Ahab in Samaria. And Ahab was asking him to go to war with him. Actually, we'll begin reading in 18. It says, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. 
Some years later he went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. And Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him, and the people who were with him induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and we will be with you in the battle. But then... Then it says, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. And then the king of Israel, that's Ahab, assembled the prophets, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go against Ramoth Gilead into battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. So then the king of Israel, that's Ahab, called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah. Imla's son. And we're going to pause there for, for this second. There's some things we need to explain. It says very plainly how Jehoshaphat's heart was to the Lord. But there's a couple things that we must recognize in this. And it's something that we, we say often in this ministry. Say what the Lord says to say, do what he says to do. And that is impossible to do if you have not consulted the Lord to gain his wisdom and knowledge and insight, to have his word from him. Now, Jehoshaphat said in this moment, let us inquire of the Lord. What's the word of the Lord? concerning this battle. Except here's the issue. Here's a couple issues that we'll we'll highlight here. He had already pledged his allegiance to Ahab, saying, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and we will be with you in the battle. He had done that before consulting the Lord. And he had already allied himself through marriage. So my question is, did the Lord, did he seek the Lord on, is that the spouse for Jehoshaphat? Or does it appear, by natural means, like the right thing to do? These are also Hebrews or Jews, right? but as two divided kingdoms. So in the natural, it's one thing to look at and say, oh, we're the same people. But then you have to go, well, wait a second. Why are we divided? Why is there such separation? And it says how Judah and the tribe of Judah was being righteous and they were after the Lord and his heart, just like David. 
But yet that was not the case with Ahab. This is plainly, if we go back, if we actually turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, it talks about Ahab. We'll begin in verse, uh, chapter 16, 1 Kings 16, chapter 29. Ahab, the son of Armory, became king of Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Is that the same place that he was just meeting Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat went down to meet Ahab? Said Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngsters, or excuse me, the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. But, so I bring this up because we see Ahab, we see his heart, we see what his focus is. So while it, it was understand in, in the natural, understandably he could go, well, these are my people. By, if you will, biological terms, yes. But by the heart towards the Lord, no. And, and I say that because 1 Kings chapter 22 records this, this event and this meeting. And it's actually identical to what we just read in Chronicles. Just that first part. But here is the, the thing and the issue. There are, and as, as we were just reading, there are many people that are involved for the Lord at this time that are teaching and ministering the Lord to the people, especially in Judah. But not just in Judah. Because if we go back, we were just in 1 Kings 16. In the very next chapter, it says how Elijah comes and stands before Ahab, and he predicted drought. But only that, if we continue, you hear about what the Lord did through Elijah and the people making a choice of who they were going to serve and the prophets of Baal or Baal and Asherah, 850 prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah were eliminated on Mount Carmel. Not only that, but there's there's still drought going on. Elijah is attempted to they attempted to kill him. Or Jezebel did. 
So all these events have already happened. There's already been this time where the Lord has hit Elijah. There are a number of things that have happened that are recorded here. Various wars, more interactions and dealings with Elijah at Horeb, war with Aram, Ahab being victorious, an Aramean war, the coveting of Naboth's vineyard, and Jezebel's plot to take it over. And now, here we are in chapter 22 when this meeting is recorded. And I bring this up because it is important. Oftentimes, when we read through this, it's easy, or the story of Elijah, it's easy to lose or shift our our sight and perspective and think Elijah was the only one. And then eventually the Lord brought him Elisha. But that's not the case. The Lord said point blank to Elijah, I have 7,000 people hidden in caves that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Obadiah says how he had hit, hid people in caves. I believe it was 100 people in, in various caves. So there are a number of people in the body of Christ at work and on the scene in this moment. And again, we just talked about Jehoshaphat with Judah. There are 16 different people that are government officials that are also teaching and instructing the people about the Lord and about the Lord's ways and his thoughts and how to become like the Lord. And by that, I mean exhibiting his nature, his character, and his attributes in their lives. How to remove sin and removing sin from their life, uprooting it from their life, not yielding their members to evil, but towards righteousness, being instruments of righteousness. Now I bring this up because Jehoshaphat, while his heart was toward the Lord, what The big point here is that he lacked a consistency of seeking the Lord first in everything. To say what the Lord wanted him to say and to do what he wanted him to do. And there were some downsides to it. There were absolutely some downsides. Because let's not forget that Jehoshaphat also saw his father throw a man of God, a prophet, into prison for bringing the word of the Lord. But now here he is, and this individual that Ahab has called for, this prophet that he knows he does not, well, he, he does not like, he hates, to use his own words, how he hates the man.
he brings him, or he's brought, Micaiah, son of Imla. And he prophesies. He says the exact same thing all these false prophets, these 400 false prophets said initially. Micaiah, and this is in chapter 18, verse 12. The messenger went to some Micaiah, spoke to him, saying, Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. So please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. So and when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? He said, Go up and succeed, for there will be given into your hand. But then Ahaz's response here is interesting. He says, Then the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Why was Ahab, who ultimately wanted nothing to do with the Lord, so unwilling to accept the same lies that he had been fed and given from his own prophets. This is point blank. What you can derive from there is he knew the truth and he knew what was a lie, but he wanted to listen to the lie. And what was his response? Micaiah says, hey, this is what happened. This is what the Lord showed me and what he saw. All Israel scattered in the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. So let each return, each one of them return to his house in peace. And of course, Ahab, the king of Israel, says to Jehoshaphat, did I tell you that you would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? So Micaiah again says, this is what I hear the word of the Lord and what he showed me. And he says exactly what's going to happen to Ahab. And what was Ahab's response? First, Micaiah gets struck on the cheek by Zedekiah. That was the first thing that happened. And then... The king of Israel, Ahab, says, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And says, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. And Micaiah's response was, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then he, he exhorts the crowd the other advisors, the prophets, everyone else that's there. And he says, listen, all you people. So this is the second time Jehoshaphat has seen what he clearly recognized as a man of God. He, Jehoshaphat also knew the difference. He said, yeah, there's a lot of prophets. And they're all saying the same thing. But he knew the Lord wasn't in that. And that's to his credit. Again, the issue is that he had already allied himself with Ahab. 
He had already committed him and his people and his troops and their equipment to go alongside them into battle. And yes, it's great that he sought and consulted the Lord for the war. But should he have even had that relationship in the first place? And that's something for each of us to to understand for ourselves. If we truly want God's best, then we have to consult him in everything. And be that instrument that he can use in every situation. And he can only do that when we're consulting him so we can hear what he has to say concerning the situation or circumstance. Saying what he has to say and doing what he is doing, being in alignment with the Lord, allows us to be that instrument of righteousness. It allows us to position ourselves for the full blessing and benefit from the Lord. It demonstrates that refining that has happened, meaning that we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And that blessing and benefit, yes, is first and foremost for us in our lives, but it also extends to our our home and our spouse and our marriage and our, our family and our community, our nation, and ultimately the world. Wherever the Lord our God has called us. Whether it's in one community or it's literally across the world and throughout the world. It allows us to be able to to bring that word in season or be instant in season, out of season. Whatever the Lord would want to do and however He, through Holy Spirit, wants to minister to the needs of the people. So I want to encourage each of us today to stand for righteousness and do justice, but to be that instrument of righteousness, to guard our members and watch what we are yielding our members or and ourselves to and towards. Is it to be that instrument of righteousness? Or is it, if you will, making us an instrument of unrighteousness and give it by giving the enemy a foothold. Let's pursue righteousness and do justice. So we're going to pause there for today. I exhort you to press on for the high calling the Lord has for you in your life. God bless you. I love you. Have a wonderful week.